spotting the leaders at kids camp in the summer. And all I had to do during lunch was make sure, you know, nobody got hurt or did anything too crazy. And almost every day, Christine, Christine would come and check up on me and gather everything back into order again. So apparently discipline with children is definitely not my forte, so I survived. We're going to look at Mark chapter 15, and we're going to begin at verse 16. And the very reading of this should raise at least a couple of questions for you. Mark 15, verse starting at 16. It's on the screen, it's in Pew Bibles, it's on your app, however you want to follow along. Hear the word of God. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance, and among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the young, James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. This is the word of the Lord.
So I preached this sermon. I tried it out on Jubilee Church in St. Catharines. Because usually what happens is if I have a preaching assignment somewhere else, I use something I've already used here, and then they get a better version of it. And I thought, you know, I work here. Why don't I try it out on somebody else and use the hopefully improved version on you? Of course, when I went to Jubilee, it was shortly after Easter, and they saw my passage, and they're thinking, boy, this guy really is lazy. He's taking out his Good Friday sermon a few weeks after Easter to preach to us. And so I clarified for them, as I will for you now, this is not a Good Friday service or sermon. It's an Ascension Day sermon, because when Paul actually talks about the Ascension of Jesus, he talks as if the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that resurrected him, seated him at the right hand of the Father. It's like it's one great big action of, of death, resurrection, and being seated on the throne, right? And so we celebrate Easter with all kinds of energy and focus, and Ascension Day is really a continuation or fulfillment or a um, continuation of that story. So we're looking at the Gospel of Mark today for this story, and we're doing that on purpose because Mark is the Gospel to the Romans. And I know that because of those two words. You might know the second word. It's euangelion, or evangelism in English, um, which is really the word for good news. And most people, probably most of us, think that the word evangelism and good news, well, and gospel, those are, those are Christian words. They belong to us. Well, like many of our words, we borrowed them, we transformed them from the culture of the Bible. So the Gospel of Mark starts the beginning of the good news, the Evangelion of Jesus Christ. And what they're saying is, behold, a new king has come, because whenever a new Caesar was crowned, they would come and they would say, behold, good news, I'm now Caesar, I'm in charge, everything's going to be great. Okay? And so, euangelion is a word that everyone was using all the time. Whenever some leader would come along, they would say, I've got good news for you. I'm in charge now. Life will get better. Politics hasn't changed that much, has it? Right now, if you're listening at all to the things being said in the city of Toronto as they seek to elect a new mayor, the only difference is there in, in democracy, they tell us all the good things first, and then they take power. And in a dictatorship, they take power, and then they tell us all the good things that are going to happen, right? But the same basic kind of concept. The other word, euthus, means immediately. need my folder for that. Um, Mark loves the word immediately. Now, our translation, the NIV, which you have in the pews that many of us use, it took out a lot of the immediately's because if you just keep saying the same word over and over again, it starts to annoy people. Right? Read Mark in other translations like the North American Standard Bible, and it gets kind of crazy. Listen, this is Mark 1 in a different translation. Jesus said to them, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going a little farther, he saw James and John. They were also mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father and, and went with him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. Verse 28, immediately the news about him spread everywhere, and immediately after they left the synagogue, Mark's favorite word is immediately. That's my small point there. Why that word? Because he's talking to the Romans. All right, so every gospel, in my understanding, I need a bigger table. Every gospel, in my understanding, is written to a particular audience. 
Matthew wrote to Jewish people, particularly focusing on the, the outsiders, the weak. Mark writes to the Romans. The fact that he starts with the good news, the Evangelion, is one hint. And this idea of writing about immediately, immediately, immediately is that Roman culture, much like North American culture, is in a hurry, right? Most people like the Gospel of Mark. Why? It's shorter. It's more concise. It's jam-packed. It's like an action film, right? That's what he's trying to get across, is that immediately Christ did this, immediately Jesus did this, and immediately this happened, so that you're never bored wondering what's going to happen next because it's tight and it keeps on moving, right? So that's kind of one sign. Now, when we get to chapter 15, the second last chapter of Mark and the crucifixion story, Mark is poking the Romans with every single line in this narrative. All right, so I'm going to show you 10 things. That's why I told you it's going to be a long service. I'm going to show you 10 things that are the 10 things that happened when Emperor Nero, Nero, for example, became Caesar. And all these 10 things are in order, and I'm not going to skip verses along the way, um, are in order in this passage. And so it's my contention, and as you know, I stole this from Bema because they give me all my good material. It's my contention, it's our contention, that Mark is intentionally saying, you know what, what you thought the Romans were doing to Jesus to kill him on the cross was actually a coronation ceremony, all right? That should be fascinating all, all by itself. I'm going to prove it to you. Hmm. Was that distracting to everybody or just Ruth Ann? <laughs> Someone was hoping that it would pick me up and I start floating and preaching, right? Sorry, that ain't happening. <laughs> All right, so the very first thing that happens when a, a new Caesar is going to be crowned is that the Praetorian Guard gathers. Right? So all the, the, the royal guard. If you're in Ottawa, you see the guys with the cool black furry hats who are dying in the summer because that thing's so warm. Right? They're like a palace guard in our system. Right? So the palace guard gathers. So Mark intentionally makes sure you know it's the praetorium where they gather. Right? A Jewish person does not need to know it's the praetorium. That's totally a Roman thing. Right? And then he calls together the whole company of soldiers. So how many soldiers did Jesus have? Yeah, they had the one guy at the sword who cut off the ear. Right? So why the entire Praetorian Guard? Well, I think Mark records that to help us realize, oh, you're talking about something else. So a Roman reading this is going, wait a minute, you gathered the whole Praetorian Guard? That's a coronation. We know that. First sign. Then Caesar would put on robes and crown and a scepter. Notice how they do this in this story. They put a purple robe on him then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. So they used all the same elements, but obviously in a negative way. It's, it's a mock um, coronation that's going on here. So as you see these pieces, these details fall into place, they again parallel what happened in a coronation um, of a Caesar. And then there's a procession, of course, right? You go on that royal procession. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. And then they led him on this procession to crucify him. Notice that for a common criminal who they are going to nail to a cross and crucify, which, by the way, they did all the time. This is not—Jesus wasn't the only one crucified. It was just what they did to punish people, right? For this— instance, they go through so much effort and so much detail 
right? It makes such a point of this that you got to think they somehow got dragged into making a bigger pomp and circumstance, though in a negative way, than you would ever expect for a common criminal who's about to be killed. Fourth, the emperor is followed by a sacrifice that will be given and a person carrying the instrument of death. So in, in Nero's case, Nero was followed by a bull, and beside the bull was a guy carrying an axe because that's what they were going to use to sacrifice the bull. In this case, we have a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why is that in there? was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So Jesus is walking along. He's the bull. He's the sacrifice. And then Simon of Cyrene comes along, and they give him the cross. So he's the guy walking with the axe. He's the one carrying the cross. Everyone remember who Alexander and Rufus are? Good friends of yours, right? No, we don't know who they are. However, this. At the end of the book of Romans, Paul it's the chapter when you start reading all the names, you just skip to the end, right? When Paul thanks so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so people you've never heard of. Now imagine this. Paul's writing a letter to the Romans, and the people in Rome have already read the Gospel of Mark because it was written before Romans. And in this Gospel, it says, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and Paul happens to thank a guy named Rufus. And as he would be listening to the Gospel of Mark, he'd be going, Hey, that's my dad. My dad carried the cross. And I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, I didn't get to ask these people this, of course, I'm guessing that that's why he puts in, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus, because he knew the people in Rome, in the church, were going to know exactly who that was, and it's going to personalize this story. Fifth, the procession ends at Capitoline Hill. The U.S. has Capitol Hill, named right after this Roman place. So Rome was built on seven hills. This is one of the hills. It actually means head hill, right? The capital is the head, right? And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, except I have it on good authority, does not mean the place of the skull. It actually means head place. So it's head hill in Rome, and here they intentionally use a word for head um, for Golgotha, for that's where Jesus was crucified. We have a hard time finding Golgotha, actually, in, in um, present day. Israel, sorry, right? That this imagery is far more important than trying to figure out the landscape because Mark, again, is trying to make that point. This looks a lot like the coronation of a king. And then this, the emperor is offered fine wine but refuses it. So Nero, when he's being um, crowned, he's given absolutely spectacular wine and he goes, nope, and he dumps it because Nero, the emperor, he's Caesar. He doesn't need any gift from anybody. He is self-sufficient. So, anyone had wine mixed with myrrh before? That just proves the point, right? We're, we're pretty good and we're pretty rich, but we're nowhere near the kind of people who can drink wine mixed with myrrh, right? I don't think they make it anymore. But the idea of wine mixed with myrrh, and it's only in the Gospel of Mark, by the way, that he mixes it with myrrh, is that this is that most incredibly fine gift you could possibly offer. Right? Later, we're going to be the one we're, we're more familiar. Later in the story, Jesus offered on a stick wine mixed with vinegar. That's lousy wine, right? Makes sense. If your wine smells like vinegar, you probably don't want it anymore. Right? But here, like a Caesar, Jesus is offered the finest of wine, and though we know from the Gospel of John he was thirsty, he refuses it. Another image, another parallel to the coronation 
of Caesar. Number seven, the emperor randomly selects those who live or die. So Caesar would, as a show of his power, because he's now going to become, you know, the great king of the world, and so he'd just walk by some, some gathered slaves or, or prisoners, and he'd say, you live, you live, you die, you die, you live, you die, you live, just to show that he has absolute power. You, you're welcome that I don't actually point at you when I do that part, right? Be a little awkward. And for Jesus, they crucified him. And again, have you ever wondered, why did they divide up his clothes? They cast lots to see who would... Who was this guy that you would cast lots for his clothes? He was some guy who meandered around. His clothes probably stank, right, because he's on the road always, right? And here they are dealing with his clothes as if they are from royalty, right? It's a strange thing to do. They're also casting lots or also dividing up in a similar kind of way to the emperor deal. Now, this one doesn't have a heading because this piece doesn't fit one of the ten elements, but look what it says. It's nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of charge against Jesus read, the king of the Jews. And we know from another gospel, um, another gospel adds in the line, someone said, don't write the king of the Jews, write he said he was the king of the Jews. And that makes sense, right? Because it would actually be a charge if you said he said he was the king of the Jews. Here, the written charge isn't a charge at all. It's just a statement. He's the king of the Jews. And it's Mark's way of slipping in there again. You know what you're doing here, folks? You are crowning Jesus, king of the Jews, king of the world, right? And the very sign that you put above his head, again, shows that it's a coronation as much as a crucifixion. Then the emperor is flanked by two officials. So when Caesar, for his coronation, there would probably be a general on one side of him and a high priest of whatever his religious... uh, affiliation was on the other side of him, and for Jesus, they crucified two rebels with him. Again, the opposite direction, same idea, one on his right and one on his left. And again, you'll notice here that in Mark, that's all they say, because they just want you to see the same image you would see at the coronation of Caesar, emperor with one on the right and one on the left. Here, they don't have an interaction other than the insults that everybody was doing, which is probably the next slide. So, number nine, this cries of hail Caesar. Everybody, once they get going, right, it's, it's, it's a cheering section. Once some people start saying hail Caesar, everybody else starts hailing, saying hail Caesar. The two people on the other side of Caesar are saying hail Caesar. The crowd starts saying it. And in Jesus' case, those who passed by hurled insults at him. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Again, it's a twisted version of the same basic pattern and activities. And then number 10, there's a sign from the gods. It's said that when Nero was, um, when in his inauguration, there was actually an eclipse. And here Mark tells us, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, more than an eclipse, right? That is a major event to have that happen in the middle of the day, right? All those pieces. And if that's not enough for you, one more. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, so this is a Roman centurion, surely this man was the Son of God. Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, don't you think that's a rather strange coronation of our king? It fits, I believe, all the activities that would happen when a Roman Caesar was being crowned, but it twists it all. And I think that's significant 
for us to understand what it means to have Jesus as our king. We've sung about this already. We've talked about this already in our worship. The idea of having Jesus as our king is recognizing that our king does not work by this world's rules. That for us to say, hail to Jesus as our king, is to say, we are also going to submit ourselves to whatever we need to do to serve others, to bless others, to care for others. We're going to lay down our lives to help others. Our kids know if someone is homeless, you give them food or you find them shelter, right? We're the kind of people who follow a king who says, it's not all about me showing off my power. It's all about me serving the others with love and humility and blessing and care. And I think we need to be honest. We're really tempted by that other kind of power, right? Even in the church, throughout church history, we've been really tempted to be people who say, we've got Jesus, we've got the truth, and so we're going to come in with power and we're going to conquer other people in the name of Jesus. And yet, the one who we follow, his coronation was a death on the cross. It was the ultimate sacrifice. It was the laying down of his life for others. And I wonder if we need to continue to wonder how best do we follow Jesus in a power-based world in a power-based kind of culture. And then this. This is the end of the Gospel of Mark. So I encourage you now to find Mark 16 in your pew Bible because it'll help you believe me here. Um, the Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8 with these words, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, that's kind of a lame ending, don't you think? We sang, we should go tell people, or Jen sang that, right? And here it's, they were afraid, so they just kind of kept it down. If, you, if you're looking at your Bible, you'll see there's a, a line there right after verse 8 here that says, earliest manuscripts do not have verses 9 through however long your Bible puts in there, right? So probably what happened was, my version anyways, Mark did end his gospel here because this is a perfect ending for a gospel to the Romans. Because if you're a Roman citizen and you're supposed to be in allegiance to um, Caesar and you decide you're going to follow this Jesus who was just coronated on the cross and rose from the dead, you're going to be terrified and you're not going to tell anybody because that is an incredibly challenging switch to make. I wonder if you recognize, if we recognize, that if you're going to live in North American culture and you're going to say, Jesus is my king, and that I actually want to live my life first and foremost always for him, you might also not want to tell people about that. Because our world honors power and strength and wealth, not sacrifice and service and gifts and giving. Right? So it makes sense that someone reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time thought, we can't end there. we got to we got to finish this thing. And so they added the other verses, which tell about a few of the things that Jesus did afterwards, right? But I'm suggesting that when Mark first wrote this, it ended exactly here where the earliest manuscript ended. And it ended there quite simply because the gospel was meant to understand this is a jolt to you. This coronation of Jesus, this sending up of balloons and celebration is also a commitment to say, I follow a God willing to lay down his life who then invites me into a life of service to all those that I meet. Not a life of me, 
but a life of you and them and gift and service and sacrifice. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come to your table now, as we receive this incredible gift of your enthronement, your power, your love, we pray that you would fill us with a spirit of humility, that you give us eyes to see those places where we can serve and help and give. We thank you for the marvel of your word, that when we dig into it, it tells us that you've come to be countercultural, to be other, to be a God not of human and earthly power, but a God of heavenly sacrifice and love. Lord Jesus, may we receive from you your healing power, and may we give to others the same. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.
Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. When we participate in communion today, we're recognizing that this meal is a meal we share with the King of creation, with the Lord of lords, with Jesus ascended and on the throne. And that to participate in this meal is to say, I want to be one with him. I want to be on his team. I want to work with him. I want to be more like him all the time. And to participate in this meal is to recognize I'm not yet all those things, and I need him to feed me, to nourish me, and to nurture me on that journey. In that tone, with that respect, we come to this table today. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray in preparation. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your death for us, your sacrifice, and your show of humility and grace. Lord God, we praise you for the resurrection, the power that showed that death cannot hold Jesus and that sin cannot hold Jesus. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that as we face our brokenness and our need and our weakness, that we would turn to you and see you as our ascended Lord, the one on the throne to whom our prayers rise and who translates all those prayers into the most beautiful thing we could possibly ever think or say or feel or do. Lord Jesus, may we know that we are in you and that in you we sit with the Father and that you have connected us one to another and all with you. Join us, we pray now in this meal, into one as only you can. In your name we pray, amen. For communion today, the elements will be served in the pews, and so the elders have already come forward. I invite you at this time to distribute the bread. <laughs> 